Welcome, I'm Paul Hunt, Senior Journalist at Aspermont, and this is a special edition interview for Energy News. In this episode, we focus on one key area of expertise, social licence, an important part of any resource business's future. There's perhaps never been a more important time to be talking about social licence or trust in communities. Social licence is one of the most necessary, but sometimes undervalued areas for the mining, oil and gas and general resources industry. The very definition of what it means is hotly debated. Its relevance, however, has never been more important. I'm joined today by Dr. Kieran Moffat, the CEO of Voconic, a pioneer in the social license sciences sector, to discuss these issues and more. Kieran, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. It seems like an ample time to be discussing uh, social license to operate in the resources industry. Uh, given, I guess, the tragic circumstances that Rio Tinto found itself in uh, lately, and more broadly, um, why is it such an important time to be having a conversation around social licence in 2021 and 2020? Yeah, look, I think that it's always a good time to be talking about the context in which you're operating and thinking about how you're uh, meeting or not the expectations of the communities that you operate within and, and interact with. So I think perhaps it's more that the conversation has matured, that more people uh, understand the value of having that conversation and engaging in that conversation in constructive uh, and progressive ways. I think I think perhaps that's why it's it's critical. But what I think companies understand is that you can't do business without understanding that social context um, and uh, reflecting the needs and expectations of it in the way that you do business. Well, let's take a look at, I guess, um, the Australian landscape in particular. I mean, every company executive that I talk to um, seems to have a bit of a different definition of what uh, social license is. Can you give us yours? Yeah, look, do you know what I I try not to get caught up in the definition because uh, it has limited utility. It's not you know strong agreement about an academic definition, but I think there are some parts of the way that we describe social license that are really important to capture and actively reflect on much more than just sort of remembering a rote definition of social license. So, so for me, having done, you know, 12, 13 years worth of, of academic and then, um, you know, research around social license and now applying that research in the field with a business, what's key to me is that social license is about the relationship between a company and the community in which it operates. There are a couple of key components there that, that are worth unpacking. First of all, what is community? I think that is a, an age-old question and, and, uh, and something to really think carefully about. So definitions of social licence talk about communities of interest that are, that are local to an operation, but also um, community that's inclusive of those that can affect um, a company in other ways. So they can be located in other places. They can be in other cities, in other countries. Um, that it's their influence that determines their legitimacy in the conversation about social licence. Now, every CEO that you talk to also, I'm sure, pays attention to 
what stakeholders are saying about their company that have the power to influence shareholders and boards and, and the way that the regulators, for example, determine how their business is conducted. So it's, it's not a leap to think that actually community in other places or stakeholders in other places um, are also uh, legitimate um, components of that social license. So, so there's that. And then the other piece here is the relationship. So what is the relationship? Um, and very typically, uh, mining and energy companies have thought about their relationship connection points in, in quite distinctive ways. So one looking at impacts and benefits. So physical things like dust and noise and, and mm. water quality and those sorts of things and economic value um, and jobs. And then on the other hand, you have engagement specialists who go and, and meet with stakeholders and community members and, and have a relationship with them. Actually, social license brings those two spaces together and the relationship is every interaction point that you have um, between a company and a community. So those two sets of ideas together show you that actually social license is multidimensional and, and actually defining it is quite challenging. But what's really important in that is to continually evaluate what your relationship looks like um, and with whom uh, and, and how you're managing that actively. I think that's really critical. You talk about, um, I guess, the, this this definition and how you can't really define social license. And obviously, it depends on each project and each company individually. But if we could just focus for a second on geog well, geographical location of social license, um, I think that's a really interesting point because if you look at something, well, if you look at recent events, whether that be um, Duke and Gorge or um, even in the oil and gas sector um, fairly recently, there was Equinor's plans to drill in the Great Australian Bight. Um, now, they'd all done a lot of work with uh, local and local communities and, 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 and some stakeholders and many companies do. But do you think the geographical... Um, definition of social license is increasing more broadly um, as in like you know once upon a time these issues would have just surrounded a few towns and the area that say mining comp company was operating now it, it can become a real big issue on the public stage yeah look and i think this really highlights its multi-dimensional nature right so you know you, you actually can have very different perspectives amongst different stakeholders or community members depending on where they are so the geography component you're talking about often and this is you know not speaking to those two cases specifically mm. but the observation that we've made is that you know you can have communities around a proposed development site who see real opportunity for them with respect to local employment and economic activity um, and also they may have experience with these kinds of developments before and have a realistic understanding of the negative impacts that also come along with large-scale development and are comfortable with that and that they can kind of manage uh, those two things together and on balance it's a it's a positive thing and so they're really supportive of a project and and then you can have communities in other places who take a different perspective and, and perhaps place that operational proposed development into some larger context like uh, like climate change and and what that might mean in a larger context so you know and be really anti so I think that it really depends on the issue and for, for, for companies why this is 
you know, I, I guess I always look at the, the EY risk register every year and see that, that social license to operate is right up there every, mm-hmm. every year in terms of uh, risk to mining. Uh, operation and I think the same goes for, for energy in general um, uh, but you know the the reason that it's consistently up there one two three on that on that list is we don't have really sophisticated ways of understanding and then managing that risk that the ways that companies use to do that aren't working effectively enough to actually push that risk down the register. So so I think that this is really telling us that there is complexity here, that that that's, you know, it's okay not to have all the answers, but what we find in, in our work and our observation here is that, that actually communities at whatever scale really value companies engaging meaningfully in the conversation about that risk, about um, that set of interaction points they have with local communities and other communities of interest and that companies are often um, very fearful of engaging in those spaces, having those conversations um, where they don't have all the facts or they don't have all the answers or they haven't made all the decisions yet. They haven't resolved all the uncertainties, but actually that's kind of a problem because that's Mm. not real life. We're all managing uncertainties around a whole bunch of things and communities really value and place a lot of store in having a meaningful conversation as those ideas develop. And I think that's something uh, that that represents opportunity for for these industries, actually, to be a little more vulnerable with those communities. You say that, um, you know, you look at the EY risk register every year and you can see that social license is always well and truly up there. Um, Do you think that uh, we haven't, well, we haven't managed to find the right approach just yet? Is there a one size fits all or is it... um, is this going to take further work? Yeah, look, I think that we're in a transition period where um, I think most major companies that that invest in these spaces that that are, you know, just companies that see themselves as being um, uh, around now and and for the future um, understand that they need to engage in these spaces differently to how they have in the past uh, and that they need to develop their capacity to engage in that complexity. But that takes a little bit of time, right? It takes time to, to, to shift the direction of these very large ships. Mm. And also they're operating in, say, regulatory contexts and legal contexts that um, make those changes um, uh, difficult to, to happen really quickly. Um, but I think that uh, where we see companies embrace the challenge Um, Where we see companies willing to be vulnerable in those conversations, to put themselves out there and talk about those parts of their business um, and their history that perhaps isn't um, what they would like it to be or isn't appropriate now as it may have been in the past, that they get real benefit from that because they're having a mature conversation. So, yeah, I think there is absolutely work to be done in this space. Um, but there's a lot of good people in these companies that are doing that work. And, and I think that we're in this moment of transition where in, in 10 years we'll look back and think about some of the changes that, that are happening now um, and, uh, and wonder why it took so long. But, mm-hmm. um, but we still see mistakes made, absolutely. And, um, and you do wonder what is required for some companies, you know, to, to see that and go, well, okay, we need, we need the, the way we're doing this isn't working. The way we're structured doesn't allow us um, to, to understand and tackle those challenges in, in an effective way. And that maybe it's not, um, maybe it's us, not them.
and and we need to be thinking about how we can change. You've touched on something really interesting there, um, Kieran, and that is sort of restructuring a business to become more vulnerable almost. Um, do you find that a lot of your clients or a lot of big business are a little bit hesitant to go down that path? Yeah, absolutely. And with good cause, right? I mean, vulnerability is a difficult thing to experience and, you know, asking somebody else what they think about you effectively, that's what we do, um, is, can be a scary thing to do. And, and that vulnerability is uncomfortable, but it is also the space for greatest opportunity. It is, it is where the work is done in terms of creating the space to, to improve a relationship by exploring those parts of that relationship that are, you know, not working very well, um, questioning them, redesigning them and co-designing them. So, you know, I think it's useful to get a, a bit more specific here with, with an example. I think, you know, we've worked with, with companies that practice vulnerability in their leadership training internally. So being a, an effective leader in a, in a large corporation requires that you can speak freely and your team can speak freely with you. And so that requires a level of acceptance about vulnerability in that relationship that's healthy. But it needs to be practiced because it's an uncomfortable feeling and you need to practice how that, that feels and works and, and how you handle it, how do you structure that conversation about your leadership style or the way that you're seeking input from and but the more you practice it the better you get surprisingly mm. um, and what we find is that those companies that do that kind of leadership training are then much more able to manage vulnerability external to the company context and to be able to say to the community look we're interested in what you think about us good and bad um, because we want to work on those things with you. We want to restructure the way that we procure local services so that we deliver the greatest amount of value to local businesses because we understand that is a key component of our commitment to your place. Mm. And so, of course, we want to maximise that, but that might mean we have to change um, and we have to help you change with us. So let's have that conversation together rather than just saying, this is how we, we want to do it and, and, you know, get on board that bus or find somebody else to sell that service to. So, I, you know, I think vulnerability is a really key component for social license, underplayed, underwritten about, under-discussed, but is actually fundamental to progress in, in developing stronger, deeper, more constructive relationships with community. My guest today is Dr. Kieran Moffat, CEO of Voconic, a social license, social science uh, company, which is leading the conversation uh, around trusting communities, especially in the resources and uh, agriculture business. Uh, before we go any further, Kieran, I, I think it's good for our listeners to get a bit more of an understanding of who Voconic uh, actually is. Um, you, you mentioned that you, know, you, you do go out there and do a little bit of uh, consulting work, but that's not just who Voconic is, is it? Can you give us a bit of an overview of exactly what the company is? Yeah, sure. And, and actually, it's really useful to, to um, think about where we've come from, because mm. that tells you really a lot about why we do the things that we do, which is really the core of the business. So, so uh, over about 10 or 11 years, I uh, led a research program in CSIRO, Australia's National Science Agency, to look at the nature of the relationships between communities and companies and industries that, that work alongside them, and to really understand what is it that leads to um, stronger, deeper, more constructive relationships. Um, in, in doing that science, what we did was to determine the, the key drivers of acceptance of 
those companies and, and industries? Um, and, and what are the key levers that mm. those companies and industries can pull to improve their level of acceptance? What we found in that process was that trust in a company was fundamental to its level of acceptance. And so a lot of our research then focused on, well, what is it that leads to deeper trust? What we found in CSIRO is a strong demand for that skill set, that capacity, um, that science. And we built a service around that science, um, which is effectively what Reconic is. It's a service that delivers that cutting edge science to companies and, and industries um, in five countries now and, and in 60 communities um, in those five in those five countries locally and also to to more than a dozen um, industries in the agricultural space as well at the national scale where we bring citizen perspectives into um, into their industry so so Voconic is a vehicle for this science to, to be able to deliver it at scale all around the world and help companies to um, connect more effectively um, with their communities to reduce their level of social risk and um, to improve the lives of the communities that, that work alongside them. We, we use social science methods that are, that are now built on a technology platform so that we can do that consistently anywhere in the world and to deliver really um, important, insightful data insights um, through dashboards and, and things like that to um, uh, to our customers anywhere. And um, it's really interesting work. It's meaningful work for my team and myself. And, uh, uh, and Vaconic has, um, has big plans for the future as well about how we want to take that science forward. Can you give us a bit of an example? Well, can you give us an example of uh, a company that you've worked with and the results that you've, you've seen out of that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll give you two, actually. So the first one is... Um, with, uh, with a company called Yamana Gold, um, Toronto-based Canadian gold mining company, but they have multiple operations in Latin America. And so they're challenged there with, with geog by geography and, and culture and how you build a consistent uh, culture of social performance in those sites in, in contexts like Brazil and, and Chile and Argentina where um, where perhaps they're they're on a curve to improve in those in those areas, but but aren't as as advanced as in, in some other places. Um, working with teams that are doing really good work locally, but um, but again they're 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 working from a different place. Uh, and so um, what we started doing with with Yamana was to articulate in data the nature of the relationship they had with, with a local community, say, in, in Brazil. Um, and what we showed them was that um, they had a real risk area around blast impacts on, on houses that were in a yeah. particular neighbourhood close to a site. Um, and it was challenging for that local team to embrace that and to, to reshape their engagement efforts because they had a strategy in place. They then had a conflict and actually um, it, it wasn't great. And, and then that, that really acted as a trigger for them to take the local voices data that we're providing to them um, every quarter, which tells them where communities are in, in terms of that relationship. And they reorganised their strategy for community engagement and investment around the things that we could show them in the data, the science, that were the key drivers of a stronger, more trusting relationship. And what we saw from that over the next 12 months was that trust in the company increased significantly and dramatically um, to the point where, um, you know, they reduced their social risk significantly in quite a short period of time just by aligning their actions to the needs and expectations of community. And it seems really simple, but actually it's, 
incredibly difficult in practice to reorganize the way a mining company engages um, the, the community in, in terms of the community's priorities rather than yours. Um, and that requires courage and, and, and appetite for vulnerability and the willingness to try something new. And they did that really effectively. The other example is, is in Australia and Kalgoorlie work with a fantastic team um, at the KCGM um, site there, so Superpit. Yeah. And they took the data from, from our first anchor survey, benchmarking survey. They really embraced it and they dived into that data themselves and went, okay, look, we need to reinvigorate our relationship here in Kalgoorlie Boulder. So who are the people in the community that have really strong relationships already? And can we build relationships with them to understand how they do that well and, and to work with them to, to build our own relationships? And they did that and started building um, new relationships with chambers of commerce there and with local business people. Um, and again, in the data, we were able to show that that paid dividends. Mm. And, and so when they walked into the COVID emergency period, they had built their relationships with local businesses who, of course, were you know, badly hit by COVID um, to the extent that they could then work back out to those groups and say, well, what can we do to support you? How do we help you in this context? And I think that's, you know, beautiful case study where by understanding what the whole of community think, um, taking those data insights and digesting and reflecting on them and then doing something with them, um, that paid off down the track in ways they could never have predicted because we never saw this coming, but it had real benefits for both community, small business and, and the company as well. I think that nicely segues into another uh, sort of area of discussion, um, and that is how has COVID-19 and the financial and uh, economic impact of COVID, uh, how, how, what, what effect has that had on social licence? Yeah, I think it has been fascinating for us looking at the data coming. I mean, So you've done every... a comprehensive study on this? Well, what, what we did is that all of the projects, all of the customers that we're working with, we were collecting data anyway through okay. this period because our approach is that um, not only do we want to get a point in time understanding of those relationships with the community, but actually we want to track them across time because the relationship is live, it's dynamic. Yeah. And so we collect data typically quarterly, but, but even monthly for some customers um, and that allows us to tap in in real time to the nature of that relationship. Through COVID, though, what it allowed us to do is to see how things changed as, as the situation developed, which is incredibly fascinating because, you know, early on we saw what was coming and so we organised our data collection around COVID. So we yep. were measuring community fears and concerns and anxieties across a whole range of dimensions from local business economic impacts through to feelings of isolation and concern about children at school and all sorts of things that were on all of our minds, right? And then we were, as time progressed, looking at how people were perceiving, you know, company responses and efforts that were being made um, and, you know, what was seriously interesting through this was that we saw trust in those companies that were engaging effectively in the space increase significantly pretty universally. Okay. And so I think that really, I think what that means is that people are looking at their relationship with that local mining company in a new light. Yeah. I think it showed them that those mining companies uh, and energy companies weren't just, they weren't just a local employer, they weren't just a multinational, they weren't just down the road, 
they were actually really important local institutions. They were symbols of continuity and reassurance that life would continue because mm. it seems like an age ago. But in those early times, we really had no idea how this was going to play out. And it happened so rapidly um, that, you know, we were tracking changes in this data day to day. Um, and so what we saw is that, yeah, trust and acceptance in those companies improved significantly and has since come off a little bit, actually, as communities have got back to business as usual. That, of course, coincided with, with a lot of companies investing a lot of resources in supporting communities in really tangible, meaningful ways. Mm. But what's really interesting in that data for me is that the main driver of that improvement in trust seems to be um, quality of interaction with company personnel. And if you imagine at that time, what happened was that we weren't allowed to be in the same room as each other. So all of the typical ways that community engagement teams were engaging were off the table. So agended meetings and formal stakeholder meetings, those sorts of things all stopped. But what happened was that those community engagement professionals were picking up the phone and having really short but meaningful conversations with those community members and stakeholders. They were checking in with them, seeing how they were coping, um, seeing how the company could assist, giving that reassurance verbally. But more importantly, they were having a real relationship with them in real time at a moment of real need. Mm -hmm. And I think that was key in that. And I think that's the key lesson that we are trying to help our, our customers to take forward off the back of, of that emergency period, which is a don't forget people really valued those specific activities where you were connecting meaningfully um, with community members uh, in that, in that moment. And, you know, often in the, the fray of a really busy work agenda, um, we kind of lose that a little mm -hmm. bit. And, and I think those were really meaningful to community members. And if you could take anything forward, it would be, you know, don't lose sight of the fact that agendered meetings are important for things like making decisions and formal parts of agreements and whatnot, but the relationship lives somewhere else and, and you've got to always kind of um, attend and maintain that. So, Kieran, is it more of an in, well, individualistic approach that needs to be taken uh, more often? Do we need to be speaking to people on a more individual basis than just uh, hosting a, a workshop or a, or a discussion? Well, I think actually it's, it's not about individualistic, I don't think. I think it's about stepping back and thinking about what the relationship needs. Yeah. So, so thinking actively about that. And that's really challenging in an incredibly busy, resource-constrained work life that we see most community engagement specialists. That, that's their reality. Um, but if you can step back and reflect on what that relationship needs that's going to help you align your behaviour and, um, and your allocation of resources to the things that, in effect, are going to make your job easier because you're going to have your finger on that pulse. And, you know, that's where we start to try and work into that relationship by helping those practitioners with a shorthand, you know, a shortcut to the critical issues for particular groups in particular places at a moment in time that, you know, here are the top three things that those that community is, is thinking about right now. Um, and if you were to have a conversation, if you were to have five minutes with somebody, here's, what you, here's three questions you could ask them. And I think that's a really neat way to, to, to frame this. What questions could I be asking um, in that conversation rather than what, what do I want to tell them? Yeah. 
So I think it's about reorganizing how we interact um, in, in those contexts. And, and you know, that's going to have real dividend. No easy feat, though, when, uh, you know, we've been doing things a certain way for a very long period of time. Really hard, really hard. But then the EY risk register is exactly why it's, it's absolutely worth trying something new. And it's, it's absolutely worth thinking about um, every part of that relationship and, and my role in it. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, trying systematically then to, to address the, that, that risk. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, um, it is absolutely the moment to be having a crack at that. My guest today is Dr. Kieran Moffat, CEO of Voconic. Kieran, you mentioned um, earlier in our discussion that you'd seen this huge rise in, uh, I guess, trust and social license during COVID. Um, and it was those, uh, you know, the, the personal um, engagement with communities that really made a huge difference. I guess the glaring uh, elephant in the room this year has been uh, Duke and Gorge. Has that undermined trust and will we ever get back from that? Yeah, look, I think that was a, a terrible incident mm-hmm. uh, and an issue for, for Rio Tinto that I have no doubt will echo within that company for forever. Um, uh, and and is you know and and you know we we work um, with people from Rio Tinto and um, this is really challenging for them as well because it, you know a lot of and this has been reported this isn't me revealing anything that mm. that isn't already been in the papers but feeling like you know th- this was something that that doesn't feel like the, the company that I that I signed up to to you know be employed by so. I think it's challenging for, for everybody and, you know, going forward, what's really important is that lessons are learned, of course, right? And that we shake up the way that we think about risk um, uh, uh, by looking at the relationship through the eyes of community members and through the eyes of stakeholders and to think about the stake that they're defending, the, the stake that they're holding. And, and to really get back to first principles here. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's the challenge. Um, you know, what I think actually has happened, and because we have data on this, is that that has been largely contained uh, in local communities to, to um, you know, those communities are around Rio Tinto. But um, rather than being an industry-wide um, phenomenon, but I, but I think actually community sentiment more broadly towards mining companies isn't particularly positive um, in any case. And so I think rather than this sort of destroying, you know, this huge well of of trust that exists, I think the greater risk is that it reinforces the perspectives that some people hold um, about this industry when, in fact, the mining industry is incredibly progressive and has um, invested a lot of energy in trying to be better in these places mm. because it has lived with these very real decisions um, uh, and, and risks in, in its relationship with community um, forever because, you know, resources are at the, at the centre of every great human challenge. Yeah. Uh, and so they have a lot of practice in, in, in working through and being part of those conversations. And so more than most industries... Uh, mining and, and resources in general understand the complexity of them. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not quick to judge because I think they are, you know, challenging complex environments to operate, but the things that have happened there were things that others were talking about as being a real risk for that company. And you'd hope that 
here is a chance for reflection, not just for, for Rio, but for the industry in general. And to be thinking, you know, what does the science tell us is important here? What does what do people who spend their lives focusing on these things um, uh, tell us are are really critical and uh, and to you know not to take that on board but just to use it to reflect on on how we do business as a company. I'd I'd like to ask a, another question which relates to um, another big issue in our society and particularly for the resources industry and that is climate change. I mean this is also an issue for the um, agricultural sector as well. Um, fairly recently, you know, you've had FMG, Rio Tinto, a lot of big resource companies in Australia looking to, uh, you know, the re replace the fuels that their trucks are using and, and make some real uh, progressive steps um, to eliminate their uh, carbon dioxide emissions amongst other emissions. Um, when we, and, and even electrify some of their vehicles, which is incredible in itself. When you look at something like that, it's not actually publicly well known. Um, are we, as an industry, is the mining sector and the oil and gas sector doing enough to, to sell their story of the efforts that they're going to, to um, because we, resources, as we know, are, are going to be so important to A, our economic recovery from COVID, but just generally speaking, it's our, they're our biggest exports. Um, are we underselling or, or not communicating the things that we are doing right um, as an industry? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a great question. And, and I, you know, drawing agriculture into this conversation as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, interestingly, resources and, and agriculture, two industries that have kind of been powering through COVID and really doing a lot to support our country here in Australia and, and to participate in that global economy, which, as you say, will be so important for, um, for recovery and, and actually continuity through this, this period. Um, I think that absolutely those two industries or sets of industries um, can be telling and are trying to tell that story about innovation in the context of, in the global context in which they, they operate um, uh, effectively. But, it, but it's also a, a crowded, um, critical landscape. And so, you know, if you're wanting to talk about how you're reducing your emissions as a company, then you have 10 more voices talking about, you know, how your products contribute to global emissions, you know, more generally. And, you know, and so those responsible steps that a company or an industry might be seeking to take can be lost in that, that to and fro and that argument. You know, where I think, where I think industries kind of fall down a little bit is by focusing on those extreme perspectives mm. and attending to them, defending themselves against them and, and missing, I think, the larger conversation, the more important conversation, which is with community more generally. Um, and to have that conversation um, uh, in interesting, novel, vulnerable ways. I think that is, in fact, the way forward because, you know, the, and we see this in the data that we collect at that national scale, say, with the Rural Industries, um, uh, Trust in Rural Industries project that we're doing at the moment um, involving, you know, 12 different Australian rural industries, is that when um, those industries can build trust with community, they actually build the space for innovation, uh, because trust is about benefit of the doubt when things go wrong, 
um, innovation is effectively a series of failures on the way towards a, a different way of doing things. Mm. To be able to fail effectively, to be able to fail and learn requires um, uh, that the community, you know, for example, is willing to let you, is willing to, to see you try to improve, not get it right, to iterate and try it again. And that requires trust in that relationship. Um, and so I think building, uh, you know, a stronger, larger conversation with um, the community in general is absolutely the way to build deeper levels of trust, which allows those industries to innovate more effectively and then to tell that story back to community and almost to repay that faith and to say that, hey, you know, we know this rural industry is water intensive. That's why we want to work on making it less water intensive and uh, more complementary in the way that it, it operates alongside other industries here or environmental um, uh, concerns um, and for resources to think about, well, actually, um, you know, we're diversifying our portfolio, not just for shareholder value, but because we want to be part of that future. And, and that requires particular critical minerals. And we want to be bringing our expertise as a multinational mining company with decades of, of experience in how to do that most efficiently to that problem. And so I think that's why it's important to be building larger, stronger relationships with community at that level, rather than focusing so heavily on those critical voices that, that have a platform. You know, they're always going to be there. They're always going to criticise you. And if you address that concern, they shift to something else. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you're ever going to change their mind. And you spend a lot of energy trying to defend a position um, that, that actually doesn't speak too strongly too directly to what matters, which is the larger context, the relationship with the community as a whole. I'd like to get your thoughts on a story I found out about a few uh, weeks ago. Um, here in Perth, we're able to, to gather um, and, and I went to a... Uh, you. Yeah, I know, it's great. I feel sorry for you guys over in Queensland and the Eastern States, but uh, there was a conversation held at uh, the Como here in Perth and it was the chief executive of uh, one of Australia's largest fishing companies called Austral and a conversation with the director or the Australian director of Sea Shepherd. And they were talking about how they had worked together uh, through a partnership, which, you know, would th you would think would be one of the most unlikely partnerships um, to come about, uh, this massive uh, fishing company and Sea Shepherd, um, where they came together to stop Patagonian toothfish um, uh, poaching uh, in southern Australian waters, um, and then more broadly about you know looking together and finding a way to become for Austral to become carbon neutral, and the benefits that that had both for shareholders and for um, social license and um, and working with community groups. How important are partnerships like this? Oh, look, I think those are the stories that inspire us, right? Mm. I mean, you know, that is where there is so much opportunity. And there's actually lots of stories like that, often stories like that, that don't make it into the papers or into, um, into the, the conference room, right? I think that um, where those mutual interests are identified, and you can work proactively and constructively with, you know, erstwhile um, uh, combatants, then, you know, I think amazing things are possible. And that's about sharing perspectives and thinking about what's in common here and, and, and the larger purpose. So I think, 
you know, absolutely those things are, are, are really amazing when you, when you hear about them and incredibly productive. And, and I think speak to the principle, you know, I just mentioned about building relationships rather than, than fighting battles. So I, you know, I think the, the progressive companies that we work with, the progressive industries that we work with, like, for example, you know, Australian eggs are always mm-hmm. willing to engage in the conversation with their critics. Um, and that isn't because, you know, they're, they're just really lovely people, they're, <laughs> they're nice people, but, but actually because there's value in that. Mm-hmm. And why would you close off? those conversations why wouldn't you try and open them up and and at some point in the future that that may turn to you know something productive you can do together and and it looks like those two found um found uh the, the perfect space to operate you know do you know the magic in that is that by doing that they then find other opportunities right mm. and and you see that you know they're not two-headed monsters that actually they're they're a person like me they're passionate about um, the same industry as I am, and and they're just passionate about different parts of it. And 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 actually, if we were to be creative and think together, maybe there are ways to address both of our passions in in that space in a way that's complementary. So, you know, I think yeah, uh, I think obviously those are, are are great opportunities. Kieran, if you had three pieces of advice for the energy sector, the mining sector, and and the agricultural sector too, what would it be? Three pieces of advice. All right. Well, um, look, I think that my first piece of advice is don't assume the answer. You really need to understand the nature of the problem that you're seeking to address. And I'm speaking now about that social context because that's my domain of expertise. So often we can read the papers we can hang out on Twitter, we can see the comments on Facebook, um, and we can think that that's how everybody thinks about our industry. And in fact, over and over again, our research shows that the story is much more nuanced than that. And there are positive parts in every relationship as well as challenges, of course, because it's a relationship and that's how the world is. So my first piece of advice would be to step back and, and not assume that you know what that relationship looks like with say the Australian community or community of interest and to test those assumptions with science to actually bring the tools that have been honed over time to bear on that challenge um, to understand where you are right now and that really should tell you in a structured systematic way the best way to take the next step and that step should be forward it should be forward into the space between you and those communities that, that you're looking to to build trust with so you know that would be my first and probably largest piece of advice is to just step back um, and uh, and evaluate the context in which you're operating the second is to embrace vulnerability that it is scary it is difficult um, it is challenging and it takes courage but, you know, for those industries and companies that do it, the benefits are there and they're there in data and you can see it and you can communicate that story. And, and the latest CSIRO research with Australian Eggs shows that over three years, that industry improved um, its level of community trust significantly year on year um, by focusing on the things that matter most to the Australian community in their industry space. 
So, so the evidence is clear that when you embrace vulnerability, that that's where the benefits are. And the third piece of advice I would say is that if you're looking for a differentiator, if you're looking for a way to set yourself apart, be the first to that sustainability space. Be the first in that space that is, is going well beyond community expectation to work in partnership with community at different scales using those insights um, to, to drive your activities at the areas that mean most and are going to give you the greatest uh, bang for your, for your investment dollar uh, and, uh, and sit back and then and reap the rewards. So, I, you know, I think those would be the three pieces of advice that, in fact, this kind of work, this, this kind of effort is a critical differentiator um, in many industries and, and will be increasingly so in the future. We're going to have to leave it there. Dr. Kieran Moffat, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me.